Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. And our very special guest is Stephanie Davis Arai, an author and communication skills trainer who has provided teacher training and worked in schools and with parents for over 20 years. She is founder and director of Transgender Trend, the leading UK organization advocating for an evidence-based approach to childhood gender nonconformity. Welcome, Stephanie, to our Hi. first show of 2021. And I'd first like for you, if you could, to explain a bit for listeners outside of the UK, tell us about who you are and how you got involved with this argument of gender identity. Okay, thanks, Julian. Um, I am a communication skills trainer. So I've worked in schools with uh, teachers and with parents for over 20 years. So I came into this by noticing how many media articles were appearing um, about transgender kids. And in my work, you know, um, I mean, I've heard everything from parents about children. I've got four of my own, they're in the twenties now. Um, and nobody was talking about it, you know, on any sort of parenting websites, the, the issue of transgender kids was not mentioned and normally, in um, any new thing that came into education or with children would be debated and you'd see lots of discussions about it, people challenging it or people supporting it. And on this one subject, there was nothing. And I thought at that time I was writing a weekly parenting blog and I felt that I had a responsibility to to talk about it. And um, and then actually at that time, I was also working on the No More Page 3 campaign. And for those outside the UK, the Sun newspaper used to publish a, a, a topless model on page three every day. And there was a campaign to ask the editors nicely to stop doing it. And, and it lasted about two and a half years. And I was a prominent member of that campaign. And during that campaign, I, I did a lot of the radio interviews and the podcasts and the um, going out to universities and meeting with young women and, and taking part in debates and, the, and doing presentations to various groups because I'm self-employed I had the time and um, so I had a real hands-on um, experience and I did a lot of research at that time about objectification and the effects of objectification on women and the culture that young women are being are growing up in and a sort of very lad sexist lad culture at uni some horrifying stories from, from young women so that informed me as well and that while I was working on that campaign we, we none of us were allowed to write about any other issues sort of contentious issues we had to be very neutral about everything and I think another so another aspect was when I was when we were tweeting things, it would come up, or we can't retweet this event because it's women only, and that means it's trans exclusionary. And I would come in and say, well, if we're going to be absolutely neutral, we either retweet every event or none of them. Because if you're refusing to retweet uh, uh, this one, you are going to be excluding the most vulnerable women who want a female only space. And so you are you are taking a stand. So I I realised that I was the only one in the group who was coming up with the, and, it, and I was immediately um, concerned about what was happening. So that's going back to about two thousand and thirteen, or to, to, you know, it, it was it was coming up then, and I was very aware. And I started researching 
Um, and I started researching mostly about children because that's my area. And um, I, for, when we won, we won that campaign. It was January 2015. And on my parenting blog, I published my first piece in March, which was called Is My Child Transgender? And that got an enormous response from parents who were very grateful to hear somebody speaking up about it because, and what I got from the parents was fear. Um, parents were really, really worried, but they didn't speak out because uh, they would be accused of bigotry and transphobia if they did. So the response to that article, and I was thinking at the time, I must, you know, I must do something about this. It, it's, Where was I this thought, article published, can I ask? It was on my parenting blog. So my website, stephaniedavisarai.com. Um, and I did a, um, a section communicating with kids. I wrote a book called Communicating with Kids. And, uh, and that's, you know, that, that's what my work is all about. What, how we communicate with kids, what kids understand from what we say. And kids, of course, understand things very differently to adults and, and don't have the cognitive abilities to interpret and analyze as adults do. And I'm very concerned that we treat children as children. I think it's, it, it's their right to be treated as children and not as mini adults, I think. Um, and I, 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 I realize that it, with the issue of transgender kids, they were placed outside any other understanding of children, child development, child psychology. They were somehow this magical group who were completely uninfluenced by any messages they got from the parents, from the culture. They, they were immune to environmental influence. They were outside their culture, a separate group. So we could not apply any normal uh, child development uh, uh, um, uh, ideas to these children they existed separately and that's a real red flag you know you, you cannot treat children as if they are not normal children they are uh, so yes that's how I started I thought I must um, I, and I noticed that the that parents were looking online for information and finding uh, websites like like mermaids who would just say you know, your son is now your daughter, you must affirm her as a girl, which is ideology. It's not a, not a clinical approach. It's not. And for me, as a, as a parent, you know, that is the most extreme thing you could possibly do to a child. You know, a child gives you a piece of information that's not factually correct. And you tell that child you are right. Your belief is actually factual. Um, it was it was an unbelievable bit of parenting advice that uh, uh, you know would not make sense in any other area. So um, I thought parents need a, a a resource that put together all the evidence based information which I've been gathering over a period of couple a couple of years, and so they could access facts and information rather than ideology. So that was the reason for setting up. That was the initial reason for setting up Transgender Trend. It was also, there was another reason, that it, because I noticed in the press and all these sort of happy trans and kids stories that there wasn't any voice of challenge. There was nobody coming in and, and, and saying it. It was just all cheerleading. So I thought, 
I need to be a voice of challenge and nobody's going to contact me. So I need to be an organization with a website in order to be listened to. And so I, I, I launched and, you know, I was releasing press statements right from the start and, um, and it worked very, very quickly. So it was towards the end of um, 2015, I spent most of that year putting the website together, launched it in, I think it was November. Um, and at that stage, I, I think it was the same month, I'd published a piece for Wales Arts Review called The Transgender Experiment on Kids. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, and that also got a huge response. And um, so Fourth Wave Now in, in the US contacted me because it was so rare to see any article published anywhere at that time that challenged it. She couldn't believe that she'd seen. So she was right on to me you know, and, and interviewed me. And then we became um very good friends and, and that's um and, and still are uh, we have a great uk us friendship across the pond um who was this this was for denise at fourth wave now oh right. and she yes. started fourth wave now early 2015 so she'd been going for a while and she's the most fiercely intelligent writer um so fourth wave now is an excellent website and i really admired her and she's been such a great support. You know, if I'm having stuff going on, I can always pick up the phone to her and she knows exactly what I'm talking about. So we, she's been such a, a, you know, fantastic support over the years. Um, so anyway, um, that had a big impact. You know, that article in, in the Wales Arts Review also had a big impa impact. I got a lot of um, uh, uh, messages and uh, uh, thanks. Uh, you know, when I set up Transgender Trend, I got loads of comments on that first article I posted, people saying, tears of relief, thank you so much for doing this. People right. I remember we met around that time. Yeah, and parents were desperate. You know, at that time, absolutely desperate. Uh, this is going back five years. And um... Well, I had a similar experience after my first article in 2013 on this. I got waves of emails, I mean... Death threats, yes. Loads of parents writing me and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I read your piece. This is like a fountain of information. No one else has said this because everywhere we go, this was one parent in Ontario, Canada, everywhere we go, they're pushing us to transition our daughter. And this is not what we think is right for her. We think that this entire narrative is built on stereotypes and it's dangerous. And we are leftists. I mean, they were saying everything that most of the feminists and now men and women who are or are not self-considered feminists are saying in the last many years. People are finding themselves being institutionally pushed towards transition by medical practitioners, psychologists, therapists, and there's very little, if any, alternative. And there was very little, if no alternative for these parents in Canada and many parts of the US and Australia. And as you have witnessed in the UK as well. I mean, you're in, <clears throat> you're in Southeastern England. And I remember, you know, you were doing work, um, campaign work, also to address issues of this imbalance of information being disseminated by of all places, the schools. How is it that this narrative it permeated into the school system, including images like the Sam Kellerman genderbred person. This is a man who 
also did a sexuality tree where number 23 of his sexuality tree, it's a big like family of uh, sexual images uh, uh, built upon a tree, the words and the roots each are a type of sexuality. And number 23 is rape. So this is a man who believes that rape is just another sexuality. How on earth did this person's narrative get into the Brighton and Hove system? I'm dying to know about this. I've investigated, as you know, in past years, I've spoken to you about my digging into this and Brighton and Hove went cold on me. They wouldn't respond to press queries. It's total policy capture and the transactivist movement has been working for years behind the scenes in media, in governments, uh, everywhere to, uh, <clears throat> to, uh, um, to, to instigate all, all of this um, secretly and the public haven't known anything about it and have been very successful. And yes, you can say, what, <clears throat> why, why, why is that? Um, I, you know, I can... I don't know, but it's a real example of, of total policy capture by an ideological based special interest group. And we need to learn real lessons from this because um, it's caused so much damage, so much damage in society, in families with children, for women, for, for gay and lesbian people. <clears throat> so the damage is enormous and we're seeing that being played out, when you get to the stage where we're putting rapists in women's prisons, you know, is, is that not the place to stop and say, what are we doing? Um, but yes, I think the, so that work is, was going on and the job of um, all of us as, as sort of grassroots um, organizations and individuals um, is, is to, um, um, get our voices heard and of course right from the start women's voices haven't been included in this right in the UK we had a, a transgender equality inquiry and that was in 2015 um, and most people didn't know about it it wasn't all the trans activist groups knew about it uh, but women didn't ordinary people didn't I responded to it uh, and a few uh, feminists and, and feminist groups responded to it but very few, and no women who did respond were invited in to talk, you know, to, to, to give oral evidence. Who was invited? <clears throat> so we had organisations like Mermaids and uh, Gendered Intelligence going in and, and the main sort of trans activists in the UK. And then they produced a report, which was really a wish list, you know, fulfilling the wish list of the trans activist movement. And from there, uh, awareness grew um, th th through the work of, of various people, mostly feminists, and um, it began to be challenged and it began to be more public. Um, and so, so over these past five years, we've seen a real growth in, um, uh, in grassroots organisations springing up, in people becoming aware and campaigns going on to established women's voices into the um into the debate because i mean i think the biggest impact of this is on women and children and so um it's been a lot of work by many people in the uk to to, to raise awareness and work with the media and, and i do such a lot of sort of 
unpaid consultancy work behind the scenes in the media, anyone who's making a documentary, anybody who's, you know, government policymakers, um, uh, you know, and it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a lot of work to try because, it, because the narrative has already been established, if you challenge it, you're transphobic. And, and the issue of, of um, parents, you know, my experience, and I spent a lot of time when I first set up Transgender Trend responding to distraught parents, and it's devastating. The stories, the family, uh, you know, families have been destroyed by this. And as you say, actually, most of the people who contact me are sort of lefty, liberal, you know, well, we don't mind what, how our children express themselves. They're not sort of rigid, girls must wear pink, boys must, you know, they're not at all. Um, and yet they've been very, um, you know, the propaganda has been from, from the trans activists is that the only opposition it comes from the sort of far right religious. And I don't mind, you know, I, I, I actually, I'm politically neutral. I don't mind what religion you have. I don't mind what politics you have. I'm, you know, draw the line at some place, but, but basically I, I, I'm, I'm quite neutral. I, I, I accept people have different beliefs. So I don't, you know, I, I don't um, condemn people who are right wing or anything. Well, many would consider that an adult position to take, right? I mean, the purity politics uh, has ruined a lot of our work too. I think it's an important position, actually, and it's, it, it, it's me, uh, but I think it's important when you're working with children that you're not opposing something with a different ideology. I mean, even feminism, and I, I, I see myself as, 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 as feminist, but um, I, 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 my belief is you, 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 have to, you, you have to have feminism to balance the sort of male default. In anything you do, actually, you have to have a feminist perspective to balance it. Otherwise, you are sort of drawn to sort of a male default. So, but, but I try to be, um, uh, you know, when I write, it's about children. It's not about anybody, any adult ideology or any adult movement. It's about children. And that has to be pure. You know, it has to be purely about children and child development and child psychology and all of those issues and, and no adult agenda imposed onto, onto that area. Well, we've seen, even in the recent Owen Jones, Judith Butler interview, which I know you haven't yet seen, but oh my gosh, I was just watching it this morning. I didn't want to, but I couldn't resist. It was like a horror movie. And I'm watching him trying to wiggle us, voices of women on the left, into this conservative moniker. Uh, we are necessarily conservative, according to Owen Jones, because we see gender as a construction. Uh, it's a very interesting dance that Butler plays, trying to say that gender is uh, masculinity and femininity, trying to draw the lines from masculinity to being a man and femininity to being a woman. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, where has she been? Because even women during the French Revolution, like Flora Tristan, have spoken out about women's role in society. Women know better than anyone else that you can wear Levi's 501s and still be female and have a baby. You can be a man pushing a, a pushchair down the street or playing with your child in a park or cooking dinner. And that does not negate the physical reality of your maleness. And I'm, I'm struck by how much of this argument has been 
steeped in false narratives of left versus right on both sides to a large degree, I have to say. I, I did a piece about the well-placed uh, people in academia who are pushing this narrative and I took aim at a few, uh, Sally Hines, Davina Cooper, and I had some pushback by feminists because some of them wanted to protect Davina Cooper. And I'm thinking, but wait a sec, the issue isn't women are innocent and men are bad. As Owen Jones rightly points out to Judith Butler, some of the biggest cheerleaders for transgender identity are women. And this creates several sediments of problems for all of us fighting this this kind of um, social insanity, because we have to first of all recognize that this is a narrative. It's a very well curated narrative. It's a very well funded narrative, but it's a narrative. And I think we need to sort of disassociate ourselves from this kind of puerile nonsense of uh, women are innocent victims and men are evil. I mean, that's also what happened in the Judith Butler discussion. She tried to make us out as penis fears or something, or that we have fear of penis, so that we read penis into everything. Um, and I think that sort of cheapens what's going on here, not just for the rights of adults, but especially children, because as you pointed out earlier on, I mean, children, this is the one narrative that I've witnessed in my life, lifetime where whatever a child says has to be right. Anything else that would be taken up ASAP. But this is the one thing where it's like, oh, wait a sec. The child's really a girl. Let's listen to her, you know? And you wouldn't see this if a child wanted to, you know, smoke cocaine in the classroom. You wouldn't see this if a child who didn't know how, wanted to, didn't know how to swim wanted to you know, jump off Brighton Pier. You wouldn't see this. You'd see caretaking. You'd see... Um, getting a child out of harm's way. How is it that in England, especially, or in the UK, especially, that children have been authorized to speak for themselves on this one subject alone with authority? You know? Part of, um, and I talk a lot about, because um, my, uh, my area of expertise is parenting culture and par the parenting advice industry is massive. And I did, before I wrote my book, which was communicating with kids, I did a lot of research on, on all the parenting books. There were, I, I think I, I looked on Amazon and got to about 4,000 and I didn't read them all, but I, I read the synopsis and I realized that the, they were heavily weighted towards a, a child-centered. I mean, they, they fall into two categories, parenting advice books. They're, they're either uh, child-centered, which is most of them. And then there's a pushback of, of sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of rigid discipline and, and those books. Um, but there has been a huge movement, and I think it started from attachment parenting, which has its uh, it, it has its good points. But when you bring attachment, I think what happened with attachment parenting, and I think you know, secure attachment that's good. But as as, as a baby, but but those principles were brought into early childhood. And what that did, uh, I remember reading lots of attachment parenting um, uh, websites and things. And, I, I, and when it got to sort of discipline, it was all about negotiation. I thought, well, you know, authority. Well, the issue was authority. And I was thinking, well, negotiation is not authority. You know, this is, this is wrong. And, and it was all about attachment parenting is looking after the needs of the child. And if you extend that into early childhood, that becomes... The child is always right. The child, the child must be listened to, but 
there's a difference between listening to a child and agreeing with a child. And so I, I think that was the, <clears throat> the start of this sort of very child-centered parenting uh, movement. And what it does is it says that the child is born fully formed, the child is right, the child has a fully developed sense of self. And they don't say that sort of directly, but that's what the parenting advice is based on. And the parent's job is to, this, is, this kills me, nurture the child's self-esteem. Well, my four children were born with a lot more self-esteem than I have and um, able to demand and scream and to get their own way they didn't need to be um they didn't need their self-esteem nurturing at all um you know they needed guidance and um so the whole sort of parenting advice that came from that i think has been uh, very damaging i think it's been um it's left children confused, not knowing where they stand. It's treating children as adults, negotiating the rules, um, taking part in what is really what really should be the parenting job. And that's too much for a child who, who, who therefore is always pushing to find where the boundary is, wasting an awful lot of energy when they should be playing and learning and being a child. And I noticed that, um, so where I live down in the, in the southeast of England, it's very, very sort of child-centered kind of parenting culture down here. And I noticed that those children who were not given the boundaries were anxious, nervous, and not happy children. They weren't confident children. Uh, children do need adults to be adults and know what the adult role is and, and to free them to be children. But you can see where this, ties in with the transgender child now when I was when my kids were little I don't know if this was just a UK thing but we had a, a, there was a phase where everybody everybody had a special child their child was an indigo child have you heard of that google it indigo child um and and this was going on for a few years. I, I those parents would say things like, "My child was born with an old soul," and and, and you know, making claims about. You know, of course, every child is special. We all think ours are more special than anybody else's. But there were sort of various categories. So, indigo ch children went 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 probably about a decade ago, um, and they were especially spiritual children um, who had a purple aura around them or something. I can't remember, but. Okay, so, so to me, the trans child is the next indigo child, um, the child who is outside all of our, nor not a human being even, just outside all our normal uh, uh, understanding of children. Um, and, and again, it's, you know, that's when I, I was very, I, I find it a real red flag when you put children into an, you know, sort of adult understanding for the adults, um, ego or the the uh, it's it's it, it's so harmful for that child a child has a right to be allowed just to be an ordinary child no matter how special they are it also puts a, a type of expectation on a child often i viewed this even with trans, the parents of so-called transgender kids they're looking for themselves affirmation using their children as a vehicle to their affirmation. What are the goals of my child? Well, that will be a reflection of how good a parent I am. If I accept that my daughter is really a boy, then I'm progressive. 
and you know this has to be taken into account this really because it's a real thing and and, and anybody who's a parent knows that we, we want our child to be special we want our child to be seen as special it does bolster our ego it does and we have to be very careful about that because our children are not vehicles for our for our own egos and and so we have to you know, we have to temper that, don't we? And, and try, try and try and keep that down a bit. Um, uh, but it, but it's, it's it's a sort of a kind of natural human thing. It's not. It's understandable. It's not. Uh, it's not evil. You know. But um, but we have to take it into account. Um, and I, you know, I noticed. And I worked in a school for I think eight years, and um, in various different roles. And I worked a lot with parents, and I worked a lot with children and teachers. And um, I, the, the parents who who wanted this sort of special child would sort of march into the school and want the whole curriculum changed just for their child. And they were very, very, uh, uh, um, sort of almost obsessive about their own child particularly if it was an only child actually and and the but the the heart you know the <clears throat> the harm to the child given the power this really is shown by transgender kids if you are transgender you're immediately seen as one the biggest victim um and two you've got the biggest power of any child in the school you can change all the school policies you parents are allowed in this one particular case to uh the, the, their child will will change all the school policies because they're transgender and that's never happened before you know you get we get parents coming into school saying well i want the curriculum to be this because my child doesn't like this and it, and they, it would have to be patiently explained to them that their child would have to put up with things they didn't like as much as things they did like just as every other child and it's not healthy for one child to have everything their own way it would not it will not do them good it's not a good so that had to be sort of patiently explained to some parents and um and it, but in this particular case it's not it's just yes you can you have everything you want uh, because your child is transgender it, it's 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 a perfect um uh sort of vehicle for those parents who who kind of want that power themselves or want that power for their child and what happens with the inevitably with it with the um transgender child is the parents become uh transgender activists on behalf of their child and advocates for the whole transgender community and then the child also I mean you see children as they grow up they're very much used transgender kids in the media um, they get to appear on programs on tv they get to speak they they are given a sort of celebrity status and within the schools I mean schools were putting on assemblies for them and baking them cakes and so they're given this attention that to me is not healthy for one child to have and particularly for a reason that's based on a lie on a myth and the more you um convince that child that they are the wrong the other sex and that they have a very special status because of that the influence on that child is the most extreme influence you could possibly think of i mean normally we try to, with children to uh stand back to not label them to allow them uh, a freedom to grow in the way that they 
need to grow, not put too much, um, you know, really allow, allow them to flower without trying to sort of channel them one way or the other too much. And yet in this one particular case, we are reinforcing every day, every single day to a little boy that he's really a girl. So we're, we're getting all his peer group to do it. We're getting all his teachers, all the trusted adults in his life who he trusts. And this is such a massive betrayal of trust, such a massive betrayal for children. So we're doing the most extreme influence to try to keep him convinced that he's a girl. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to a child? Why not, you know, I mean, the, the, the established clinical approach is called watchful waiting because we know that most children will grow out of, of that. We, we know that most, that the majority will become gay or, or lesbian, uh, um, particularly gay boys, little, to talk about prepubertal children. Uh, with prepubertal girls, it's about 50-50, I think, you know, it's not so, because so many, girls are so-called tomboys and and um but it, this um this attempt to reinforce that child's belief which is a false belief is is just unheard of in any any sort of parenting manual you would never ever do that in any other circumstances well also the fact that schools become so enmeshed in propagating this narrative is also something of concern to me. I mean, in a parallel track, one day I was picking up my child from her nursery in Islington. It was a, a grammar school with a nursery. And when I picked her up, the teacher handed me a paper. I read it and it was about parents um, being invited to attend a job center training workshop. Now, immediately, this struck me as really troubling. I first thought, why are public schools in London, much less anywhere in the UK, giving out flyers about a local lawyer giving training to parents about the job center, uh, one? And why are schools being involved with the potential joblessness or not of parents? I mean, shouldn't school be about learning. And that clued me in that there were people being allowed access into schools in at least this one school in Islington without any kind of oversight. Because to me, that's a very strange blurring of private industry. Even if that lawyer was doing it pro bono, which I imagine he was, I tried to find out after I called his office. Um, but there's this strange conflation of private industry or private interests and narratives in what should be a narrative-free uh, sector. I mean, in, in, shouldn't education be about that? Instead, what we've seen in the UK, Canada, and other countries is that now gender is part of an orthodoxy. It's even part of the school curriculum in some areas, and it's being imposed and I wondered, I wondered if you could speak to what you found in, back in 2015 when you got involved. What did you find on the horizon, even in the Brighton Hove area? Well, um, I think what happened is um, the, the ideology sort of permeated through all the, the background activism. And what they did quite cleverly was to introduce this subject to an anti-bullying agenda into schools. And so that's a sort of established thing, yes, we want... Uh, to prevent bullying so 
this is sort of LGBT, uh, and it started off as LGB anti-bullying programs. Uh, Gyres wrote a an anti-bullying piece for the which was published by the Home Office, and I think that was in it was very early on, 2012 or something like that. Gyres were in there very very early in the UK. They're at the Gender Identity Research and Education Society, basically a couple who've got a transsexual grown-up son daughter um uh and uh so they were very, very influential so the home office was publishing this and 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 that's how i think that this issue this subject was introduced into schools um uh, and it looks quite benign doesn't it you know anti-bullying yes of course we, we we want to protect children um and the other thing i think was the word transgender so you Actually, in the in UK law, we've got the Gender Recognition Act of 2004, which protects transsexuals, defined as transsexuals. We have got in our Equality Act 2010, we've got protected characteristic gender reassignment, which protects transsexuals. So the law protects transsexuals. Nowhere in the law is transgender protected or, or recognized or described as a category. So the change of that word from transsexual to transgender allowed its introduction in schools because you cannot, I mean, you cannot appear at the school gates and, says, and say, here's my nine-year-old transsexual daughter. But you can say, here's my transgender kid. So gender comes in to primary schools, to early years, because it's not sex. And sex and sexual orientation sort of subjects don't appear until sort of late primary secondary. So you get gender in before sex and you invent this category called gender identity and say it's exactly the same as sexual orientation. It's a thing, we all have it. There's no scientific basis to that at all. When you say a child has a, as they say, a child has a gender identity that doesn't match the gender they were or sex they were assigned at birth, what that means is you've got a boy who thinks he's a girl. You know, in plain language, this is a boy who thinks he or believes he's a girl. But they put it into this language and they abuse this this idea of gender identity, um, which does, you know, there's no evidence that human beings are born into the world um, with an innate pre-existing in the womb uh, sense of being male or female and that that sense is is completely independent of their biological sex and their socialization as boys or girls because remember that trans kids are outside their culture no cultural influence on them at all well There's of course and magical and group and a footnote also would be to point out that even before this became such a trend and it is uh, mm. Go back to the 70s and 80s. I mean, I can't remember one rock star of any sort, even down to, you know, more marginal uh, and new wave like Cocteau Twins. What one person looked like a quote unquote, you know, 1950s man or woman. And this 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 narrative that gyres and then their cohorts with gendered intelligence and mermaids, etc., this was all based on a very outdated mode of what gender means, because I did have to wonder if anyone lived through the 1970s and 80s who wrote some of the stuff, including the toolkit that Jairus made was funded by the home office. So then you have to wonder, are people in government skipping out on history? 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, when I was growing up, it was punk and then new wave and that, you know, punk saved me because I was, uh, you know, very non-conforming and, and, and uh, 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 you know, outside the group. And, and punk gave me a very safe way of being a rebel and wearing what I wanted and not having to look pretty. You know, it was fantastic. And then then it was the new romantics and men were wearing makeup. And, and I wonder whether there's been a backlash to all that, that, that um, because now the culture uh, that my kids grew up, I mean, they're all in their 20s now, but, you know, while they were being, while they were growing up, the culture became more and more extreme gender stereotypes and it did in early childhood. So the marketing to children is all pink and blue, Every, even Lego, everything became. And I wonder why there was no regulation in childhood marketing and, and toys, clothes, books, shoes, everything, um, you know, established the pink girls and the blue boys. So, but in then sort of teenage and adolescent culture, I look at girls now and I think, gosh, you've got nowhere to go because you've got your, your sort of role model pop stars are all sort of pornified and, and the poor of course we we have to look at porn culture and how porn culture has infiltrated the the music industry the film industry tv everywhere and youth culture so girls are are faced now with not only online porn um, but but the whole culture of you know really insane standards of of sexiness and beauty and and girls have to be groomed to the nth degree just to be able to leave the house and be acceptable and you know when I was growing up I I, I think I occasionally shaved my legs but I, and, and tried out a bit of blue eyeshadow but it was uh, it was you know uh, um, looking back we had such freedom compared to girls now and I noticed that you don't get um, you know every, every girl is made up foundation on her face you know heavily made up long hair trying to emulate the sort of instagram stars and the social media as well and all of that pressure of celebrities and programs we've got a program in the uk i've got what's it, what's it called i can't remember i watched half an episode once it was um but it actually the same thing is happening to boys you know and then you, you look at game the, the the six pack and the um beach bodies and the so there's much more pressure uh, and objectification of the male body now. I mean, it's, it, it's still not comparable to girls because boys still have a range of role models that they can see in the media and, and see themselves. Um, and girls have a very narrow range now. But a young girl growing up now, who are her role models? Who who are the women that will, you know, where's the Annie Lennox? Where's the, you know, where, where are the, um, I mean, there are they do exist actually, but you have to, sort of find them out in, in popular youth culture it's just extreme stereotypes and then you get gaming culture where you get you know the female heroes have, always have massive breasts spilling out and the and the male characters have massive huge um biceps and and six packs so we've gone to a real real extreme of what what men and women are and we've also these kids have been brought up in a virtual reality culture they spend such a long time online and they can have you know their avatar they can be whoever they want online they can be a man a woman a, you know a, a creature and I do think that's had an impact where, where you know where's the distinction between 
um, you know, reality and fantasy, when you're spending so much time in that world of virtual reality. I think an awful lot of things have come together to create, uh, you know, what's happening now in, with for young people. But what's happened what, in schools? We used to have our, our alternative cultures. So we had punk, we had our goths, we had the geeky kids who, uh, you, you, we, uh, we had our emos. We, we had a lot of sort of subcultures where all the kids who didn't fit in, who weren't conventional could, could go and find their group and feel, you know, dress the same, have all the, you know, like, like the same music, enjoy all the same things, follow the same rules, which is what teenagers job is to find their tribe identify with their tribe and then develop their individual identity from that um you know parents talk a lot about the dangers of peer pressure but actually it's a necessary part of that identity development during the adolescent years it's nothing wrong with it um so we, we had a lot of scope when when i was growing up for finding our subculture and joining it and feeling okay and accepted which is what every teenager it's, it's the most important thing for a teenager to feel accepted in the group now the only subculture is trans or, or you have to have a gender identity you have to be trans or non-binary or trans masculine and then this is extending into sexualities as well and what i've noticed happening is the same as with gender sexuality is is now uh, on a spectrum because we can't tell who's uh, who's gay or lesbian, we can't say who's same sex attracted anymore because sex is being erased. It's, but what's ha I've noticed uh, this agenda coming up, and and uh, um, uh, it seems to me to be like uh, uh, or asexual as take it takes the place in in terms of sexuality uh, as non-binary does, um, and it it sort of this range of sexualities and there's no distinction between same sex attracted and opposite sex attracted anymore we're all on this this sort of spectrum and it's also incoherent too because the but the asexual uh, sexuality cracks me up when you see them on uh, on Facebook or, or Twitter trying to explain themselves. It's like, wait a sec, you're describing an asexuality, asexu uh, not asexuality. Wouldn't asexuality be silence? <laughs> I'm so suspicious about this, you know, because, um, you know, kids who have been on puberty blockers and then cross sex hormones are are sterilized and they have their you know sexual function perhaps destroyed we don't quite know whether you know how much but uh it's almost like we're saying well being non-sexual you know having no interest in sex is normal we're already sort of putting that in place that, that you know that we're not harming these kids because some kids are naturally asexual i'm really suspicious about how this is being pushed but anyway you've got this so all the kids have to be pansexual um uh trans masculine trans and those are that is the you know all the geeky kids are going into that group all the kids who have been bullied all the kids who are vulnerable um that's the only subculture they can now find where is any other subculture that doesn't involve trans the gaming community the anime it's all wrapped up in trans and identity politics so um you know, it, 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 where do these kids go? That they've either got that, or, or they've got, you know, you know, for girls, it's like, you know, heavily made up, make yourself into a Barbie doll, 
and, and, and there's nothing in between. And that reflects the childhood culture and the, and the, and the extreme gendered stereotypes of childhood culture, which children have already been sort of conditioned into throughout their childhood in the most impressionable years. So it's already sort of normalized um, throughout their childhoods. And to me, as somebody who understands the power of messages to children, visual messages and messages from the culture, um, and you go into a toy shop and this is a row of pink and it says four girls, and this is a row of blue toys and it says four boys. You know, but when my kids were little, um, there were good toy shops that didn't push, you know, most sort of good toy shops didn't push, you know, dolls to girls, I don't, you know, it's fine if girls play with dolls, it's fine, I, I'm, you know, but uh, I, I remember getting catalogues through the door from really cheap toy shops and all the pages were full of really pink, garish sort of plastic things for girls, you know, domestic appliances and dolls and, you know, um, uh, um, that, that sort of thing and the boys pages were all black actually black guns and black robots <laughs> you know it's a bit of blue but actually mostly black and I used to look at these catalogues with sort of horror thinking who's going to buy these toys for their kids and then every and then that, <clears throat> that became widespread you know the, the good to, even thing even places like the early learning center where you'd expect to get you know dinosaurs are for everybody science kits are for everybody um, you know, even the sort of and clothing and shoes, the high street shops, Clark's was was promoting flimsy sandals for girls to look good on the beach and robust trainers for boys to climb rocks, literally. And this is a family store somewhere like um, British home stores, real family sort of traditional British high street store. My daughter could not find a swimming costume when she was about nine or ten that was not glamorous or sexy. We had to get, we had to go online to get her a sort of sports costume. So the, 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 what we have done to children, I think over the last, certainly the last decade has been the most gross irresponsibility. And, um, and I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big one for conspiracy theories. I think it was marketing and making money really at the root of that, from the toy industry and the clothes industry. But why was there no regulation? Because we do talk about gender stereotypes in, in, in adult advertising. We, do, we have the Ad Advertising Standards Authority, and we have rules, but we, we haven't put them in place for children. And that's the, they are the most important demographic to get right. So we've caused, we've caused so much damage, I think, um, and there's an awful lot to undo. Uh, and I think you know, we're seeing it being undone. We've got campaigns like Let Toys Be Toys there, and let clothes be clothes and again lots of women <coughs> setting up alternative grassroots organization organizations and working so hard to challenge this um and and and, and, and some fantastic sort of new toys being produced actually um uh, but it's been a real uh, battle because it's been such an onslaught and it does feel to me like um, a, a backlash against the um, more, um, you know, the freer kind of um, loosening up of those sort of rigid categories and distinctions that we had during the, you know, 70s and 80s were, were good for that. <laughs> they were, you know, well, absolutely. Good... And we saw that, that 
there was no link between femininity, masculinity, and being a, a female or a male, or being a girl or a boy, a man or a woman, what have you. And somehow this became recodified and swiftly and firmly. And so I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned, you know, let clothes be clothes, let toys be toys. There's many other groups out there that have formed since I got involved in this. Your, your group, Transgender Trend, has had a task to make an alternative school guidance, which challenged a lot of the nonsense being codified within the school system. Can you explain what your alternative school guidance is and what it was effectively combating within the school systems? Mm -hmm. So this was um, because my work is in health, education, and the legislation sort of applying to those areas. But I focused on schools in, in what I've produced because I know that if, you're, if you want to challenge anything um, and the existing guidance in schools, you need an alternative. Parents cannot challenge if that's the only material out there or, you know, versions of the same material. And it was my biggest aim right from the start, really. Well, I had a lot of aims, but that was one of, one of the priorities to get an alternative guide into schools to to arm parents to be able to say I don't agree with this guidance you're following have a look at this one and so I made the guide and it's based on my work you know it's based on my understanding of communication and communication with children and my understanding of safeguarding which is you know I'm trained um, I know what safeguarding is and I, I could see that these kids were being placed outside safeguarding completely outside any sort of safeguarding protocols in schools so I produced a guide that was really centered on safeguarding and language and um, uh, clear language and, and and clear language on the difference between sex and gender because because those two terms have been um, conflated and used as, to mean the same thing uh, the, the sort of claims like using separate toilets is 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 reinforcing gender stereotypes. It's just like no, it's for privacy. Um, so I so I did a section on on the areas in school where it's important to consider sex, and and then the areas where you consider gender, and think about how to uh, uh, sort of. Um, be you know, not reinforce gender stereotypes in in the curriculum or in subject areas or, or uh, uh, what kids wear or those, those sorts of areas but then where is sex important or toilets changing rooms um, certain parts of the uh, curriculum uh, sort of um, uh, um, sex education um, and and be really clear about the difference between those two terms. And then I put in a legal section. So I had two lawyers helping me with a legal section. I had a, a wonderful teacher who I'd love to credit, but I can't, she's anonymous, who I ran everything past her um, and to, 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 to make sure that it was, it was understandable for teachers. You know, it, it was sort of uh, teacher speak in a way uh, so, so that, teachers would, would, would uh, and she was brilliant she gave me so much help and I and also a safeguarding lead just to check that everything I was writing was was sort of compatible with safeguarding so I had some really good expert help with it and um so and, the, and it's um 
It's called supporting gender diverse and trans identified children in schools. It also has an evidence section that gives, I, I think teachers need the background information of facts as much as parents do, because if you're going to understand why you're putting policies in place, you need to know, uh, you know, what, what, what is the clinical approach? What are the facts? And what are we doing so that we do no harm to these children? And so information is, you know, factual information is really important. So, so that's in there. And it, it, goes, it drills down into quite some details, actually. You know, if a child says something, how do I respond? Because these are difficult areas and there's a lot of sensitivity in these areas. But you have to consider that if you're telling children this male child is a girl, what sort of what are the impacts going to be on other children who suddenly have their, you know, these are, these are particularly in primary years when children are still learning the difference between fantasy and reality. And they still think that if, if, if you put a, a dress on a boy doll, it makes him into a girl. How are we impacting children's development if we're telling them that this male child is actually a girl? And how are we because once you redefine one child, you redefine every other child. And so you're saying a boy is a girl. Suddenly you've redefined all the girls in the school and they have their, they, what you take away from the girls is their stable reality, their stable understanding. They don't have to question if they're girls or not. They've never had to question this before. And suddenly you're saying that your female biology does not automatically make you a girl. This, this, this classmate who's male is also a girl. So what is the secret of being a girl now? Because it seems to be, to be a girl, you have this magical ingredient that makes you a girl. Do I have it? Am I a girl? You know, and, and suddenly the reality of your, you know, what, what was, a, or was hopefully developing into a stable reality about yourself and your body and the most fundamental reality about yourself has been you know it's like the rug has been pulled out from under you uh, uh, you, you no longer have that certainty so that I think I'm very very concerned about the psychological sort of impact of child development and and the harms caused to other children by that first lie that a boy is actually a girl but for the child himself and, and it, I think it's still mostly boys in the younger years because girls still can get away with being the tomboy although it really worries me that that um i hear people saying now about a girl who has short hair and loves football maybe she's transgender you know people are being very helpful in suggesting this rather than she's a tomboy or even she's a girl who's got her own interests so that does worry me and i think the the, the number of of uh, you know younger girls is increasing but I think it's still mostly boys uh, at that age and these boys that we know are most likely to grow up to be gay um, so you've got um, <clears throat> for that child uh, they use this usually comes from the parents because no child understands that and no child understands what you're saying when you know the child is not thinking yes I've got a gender identity and I, and and I have a human right to have that affirmed and the child's thinking mum says I'm a girl my teachers all say I'm a girl everybody says I'm a girl that's the child's world and for that child you are reinforcing every day of his life 
in all his social life and his social interactions, this false um, disassociation from his body that he is a girl in his head and his, you know, he, his sense of reality beca becomes more and more strange as he moves towards puberty that, that he's this, that he's a girl. And so when he hits puberty and reality hits, he is uh, shocked and he has this huge um, reality check, but nobody's going to be real with him. And that's where puberty blockers come in and, 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 um, and puberty blockers are absolutely um, essential for this child now, because where, where, where do you go? It's like all the adults have lied to me. I'm actually developing as a as a boy and you've told me I'm a girl and, I, and look all the girls are developing differently. Well this also sets out a very dangerous paradigm where all the advances of not just feminism because I, I always argue that feminism is good for both men and women both girls and boys but all the advances that have told us especially in the 70s you know Marlo Thomas in the U.S. the the daughter of a Hollywood actor Danny Thomas came out with Free to Be You and Me she had enormous input from people like Alan Alda Gloria Steinem to put out a disc, a uh, record about how children can dress how they want and still be themselves. There was a type of, there is no female or male clothing. There is no girl or boy clothing. All of this has been undone in a very short time mm -hmm. due to this lobby. It was in, in put into place in schools around mostly the English speaking world in certain places, not all. And then the message that kids are getting is that, especially girls now, we're being told once again that there's a way to be a girl. There's a way, a right way to be a woman instead of, well, what would be more gender, you know, critical or more progressive as they like to think of themselves as progressive. But in fact, they're pushing the very regressive notion that clothes make the person into a man or a woman or a girl or a boy. Mm -hmm. and, and this has really been pushed as a, as a lie uh, in all aspects from academia. And we see, you know, what not just Judith Butler, but contemporary academics in the UK are putting out there as gender identity. Again, no basis. Sally Hines has loads of papers, but they have absolutely no basis in reality, in terms of anything that would be found to be a social real. So where did we go that now wearing a dress means a boy is a girl? Like how on earth has this become embraced by schools? And then forcing yeah. you, of course, to make your alternative school guidance to combat this. I mean, what insanity, what fresh hell is this that now uh, we're having to tell children, no, you can wear a dress, but you're still a boy. You know, the, the only message we should be giving to children is you can wear what you like. It doesn't change anything. You, you be, you know, you be you. And, and the transgender message, of course, is the opposite of that. But the other thing is, I don't know if you read the Denton's report, which, which, which details a sort of how to make your movement successful and work behind the scenes, do it secretly, all of that. Um, and part of that was tie your campaign to a more popular uh, campaign. So, so trans was tied to gay rights. And I think we've still got a bit of collective guilt about we didn't get that right quickly enough. 
So we just accepted trans added to it. The other thing, and, and, and bringing it into schools under the guise of anti-bullying, the other thing that it's brought into schools under the banner of is challenging gender stereotypes. Now schools have done great work. Uh, any school worth its salt would have actually done this work on, on gen, you know, gender stereotyping and how harmful it is. And the NEU, which is, or was the NEU, uh, no, it was the NUT, it's the NEU now, it's the biggest teaching union in, in the UK, brought out a really good uh, uh, sort of report and, and uh, about gender stereotypes. So we were on that, and then this has been slipped in, where gender stereotypes, you know, if you're challenging gender stereotypes, you introduce the subject of gender identity, as if the only way to challenge gender stereotypes is to change your gender identity, which of course, is only reinforcing gender stereotypes. And again, it's, it's where the language and, and it, it is, is so clever because if you have to think very closely, really, you don't have to think about it to realize what's going on. Um, so schools, um, what happened, so I think it's, it's come in um, without awareness really in, in terms of schools being, sort of swallowing the message you know I mean, teachers are very busy teachers have all sorts of things to deal with and if they're told well you know children are transgender and they need protecting and they need um you know anti-bullying measures and you know teachers don't have much time there um uh, so i think it's it's sort of come in um uh with with a lack of attention although i do think there's been a huge abnegation of responsibility here that uh, uh, it's so it's so um, um, illogical and and wrong and a lie that 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 somebody should have noticed, but you know the teaching union has its own transgender guidance, which is get going along with it all. I mean, every you know it's it's everywhere, all the local authorities using this awful guidance. The reason that so producing the alternative guide, I one reason. I mean, it took me a. a a, a year at least to do that it was a hell of a lot of work and then getting it designed up and then and um i um the reason i got it out when i did was that the equality and human rights commission in the uk had promised to produce its own national guidance because local authorities were following guidance from individual groups mostly all sorts based in brighton and that guidance has gone all over England and Wales, um, except Cornwall, who've got their own, but it's everywhere and it's a really, really extreme guidance. And um, so I noted, well, the, the, the Equality and Human Rights Commission had got, I think, Stonewall, Gendered Intelligence, Mermaids, Gyres, all the trans activist groups together around a table to um, discuss the national schools guidance. And I thought the national schools guidance is it. Um, I'll, you know, um, that's the one I want to challenge. So I contacted the Equality and Human Rights Commission and asked to be a stakeholder because they had nobody um, on the other side to balance the trans activists and think about other children's rights, particularly girls' rights. And and so I went in and had a meeting and I took along uh, some parents and professional and we had a, a meeting, it, which wasn't limited. And I asked a lot of questions and I was told, you know, there was one part of their existing guidance. So they had some technical guidance at that time, 
which they were going to uh, update. But there was one piece of the tech technical, in fact, their technical guidance was good in one, one way, toilets. It didn't say that the child, the transgender child, uh, had a right to use the toilets that matched the, match their gender identity. So the transgender child should be found alternative um, facilities. So that was good. But the one piece that really bothered me was that it would be in, if a girl said she was a boy, it would be indirect discrimination to not use her preferred name, didn't mention pronouns, but her preferred name and to treat her as a boy. And I asked about that at the meeting and I said, this is really, um, th th this promotes an affirmation um, approach in schools and that is an activist approach. It's not a clinically based, evidence-based approach. And really, you know, can you change that technical guidance because, or, and she said, no, we can't change any of the technical guidance that's already there. And I said, well, you need to mitigate it. You need to add something to it then to, to, to give, uh, you know, a, a, a range of, of uh, you know, uh, and provide some information for teachers. And then I wrote a, uh, a briefing for the Equality and Human Rights Commission on the issues that concerned me from, uh, from sex-based rights, from um, safeguarding privacy, gender stereotype, reinforcement, et cetera, and sent that to them. And that was at the end of, let's see, 2017, I met with them, I think it was in the November. Now at that stage, they were due to publish their national guidance. Um, and the other reason I wanted to be a stakeholder was that I would be sent an advanced draft to check and, and feedback on before they published it. So they were due to publish their national guidance in March, 2018. And I worked like mad over that whole Christmas period as well to get the, uh, I, I think I was probably at the sort of design and editing and, and checking little details stage. It was all sort of <laughs> technical stuff. But I really, I just worked 24 seven on that because I wanted to get it out before the um, national guidance was published in March. I wanted to put a spanner in the works. And how it happened was that I, I wanted to publish it in January, didn't get it ready. Finally, it was like the February half term week. I thought it's ready to go, I'll put it out. But you know, mum's not, they'll all be on holiday. It won't go anywhere. Nobody will notice it, it's half term, people will be away. And I think when I, when I published it, that did happen actually, there was a bit of a silence. And then all, all hell broke loose on, on Twitter, on social media. We faced this massive onslaught, this attack from Stonewall, from all of the groups. I think they were absolutely outraged that somebody else had produced some schools guidance. And I thought, well, you know, you can produce schools guidance. You're, a, you're an organisation. You, you can produce schools guidance. I'm an organisation. I can do the same. <laughs> and, uh, um, and actually, Stonewall put out a statement calling it deeply damaging. Mermaids put out a statement with Mesmac, which is this awful group in Yorkshire. And and I've got I, I did collate, you know, people say ban it, burn it, shred it. Uh, Stonewall Scotland, they put out those tweets. Um, and it was, you know, it's extraordinary. And Stonewall is a huge fave. I mean, I did write to them and ask for a right of reply or to take it down, and they didn't reply. Um, but they did. As, Stonewall did as an enormous favour because they. It was in Schools Week. It was in 
uh, was it in the Times Educational Supplement? I don't know, but it was all over the media. So Stonewall did a brilliant job for us in promoting that school's guidance and getting it out there to more parents. But it also created a sort of media storm, which the Equality and Human Rights Commission could not ignore because there was a lot of support for it, of course, as well. And people saying, oh, this is really sensible. It protects the rights of children who identify as transgender. It protects non-conforming children. It protects gay and lesbian and autistic children. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a really good, you know, I'm very proud of it. And, uh, and it was very welcome. So it flew off the shelves. I think, um, you know, the downloads went mad. And then we crowdfunded it to, to have it um, uh, printed in, the, I think it was the June that year or, uh, or something. And they got, they got the crowdfunders shut down, the activists. Saying this was June was, of 2018? 2018. So the, the activists got the crowdfunders shut down um, because they said it contained hate. And this was such a stressful, it was six days that crowdfunded was done. It was so stressful because um, I was on the phone to crowdfunder all the time and they were very nice. I, I really, they were very, very good, actually. I sensed that they were just going to take it down before they spoke to me and then realised that I was OK. I think they, they, they actually they were sort of going to cave. But anyway, we had quite a few conversations and they got their legal team onto it. And uh, so they obviously checked through all the legal section. And because I think Stonewall had always, I think they'd, everybody had accused us of being in breach of the Equality Act as well. Well, we hadn't actually given really much advice on, on we just laid, sort of laid out what the law, what legislation said. We didn't. But uh, um yeah, after six days, then Crowdfunder announced that they couldn't find any hate. <laughs> and they reinstated us and offered us an extra week. And I said no, because I was so exhausted by that point. I just get it over with. But then we could, we, 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 we printed it and that's gone out. Uh, it's, it's over 1,500 have gone out to schools and we've had such fantastic feedback. We know local authority areas are using it. We know schools have benefited from it. We, we uh, you know, I've had phone calls from teachers and um, asking for sort of further advice. And I, I, of course, all of this is 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 confidential. I would never name a school or or a local authority area that was using it. But um, it, it's been it's it's had uh, and then um, yeah, it's it, it, I, I, I and I was um, shortlisted for the John Maddox Prize for that guide, um, which is a science prize. And, that's um, right I remember that was real validation and you know sort of indication but I think uh it had a huge impact on the Equality and Human Rights Commission have still not published the national guidance uh so I think it started a uh a, a, a real and you know sort of um they couldn't avoid the subject that there was uh, uh, a challenge to what was going out. Now, what happened then, and I have continued to be in contact with the Equality and Human Rights Commission ever since I've sent them feedback from parents whose schools are using the transgender, one of the transgender toolkits, and I've reported back and saying, well, these parents are saying this, and, you know, and, and I've, I've pushed them and pushed them to do an open consultation where parents were involved and said you know that this issue affects every single child in every single school and every single parent and you're not giving them a voice in what the guidance will be and they've resisted that and they haven't really responded to me but I've kept up the pressure I sent them the school's guide 
and then since then we produced um, uh, a guide on safeguarding. We produced a children's impact rights impact assessment on the all sorts trans toolkit, and we produced a guide on inclusive relationships and sex education. I've sent them all to Equality and Human Rights Commission. Just kept up the pressure. So that the, and 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 as the movement has built and more campaign groups have built up, that pressure has increased. So the guidance is still not out, but I but they did send out a draft copy to stakeholders. So when that was over a year ago, and it was awful. And they had changed the technical guidance about toilets, and they promised me that they would not, they could not change the existing technical guidance that they put out. But they changed it on toilets to a child must be able to use the to toilet that matches their gender identity. And they had not changed the technical guidance that I wanted changed, which, which was promoting affirmation and social transition in schools. Totally no evidence base to support that approach. But as we learned from recent uh, discussions around the Equalities Act, this is an incorrect interpretation, is it not? Mm. Yes, it is. I mean, um, and, and, you know, there, there is a challenge to the EHRC going on now. But since they published the draft version, I responded to it. Um, um, and um, mostly, for, actually, I responded in terms of flaws in, in process, that it wasn't a democratic process that had, had led to this document. And it was, uh, uh, have they done it? But um, they... Then, um, you know, that was over a year ago, and then they were supposed to publish again in September this year, and I think COVID has got in the way, etc. But I feel very, um, I think that the Transgender Trans Schools Guidance uh, had a huge impact on that process of the National Schools Guidance, because I, I, you know, I thought once the National Guidance is published by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, that's game over, or not game over. I had I had plans to deal with that, but it was it would mean such a lot of work to undo that once that was out. My my biggest aim was to to prevent that coming out. I think I succeeded. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. The recent Kira Bell case has been another uh, nail in the coffin of this ideology, which, I mean, it was you, I remember, I was writing a piece about the effects of puberty blockers like Lupron, and you were the person who pointed out the study that was taken out on sheep, because believe it or not, <laughs> humans have not been properly studied, uh, or human children, for obvious ethical concerns on this very subject. And we know that, the, that there are uh, detrimental repercussions for the use of pu puberty blockers on sheep, not least of which is physical development of bones and organs, but also then the whole psychological element obviously cannot be studied through sheep. <laughs> we are not even allowed to discuss. And I think Kira Bell's victory, along with the mother of the other trans-identified child, um, that their win 
means something for the larger picture, even outside of the UK. How do you see this case being the springboard for a very likely uh, revolution against gender ideology? It changes everything. I think people don't realise the central part that puberty blockers play in the transition of children. To me, puberty blockers create affirmation and social transition of young children. So the, without puberty blockers, that child gets to puberty and everything. Now, one of the things that the school's guidance always suggests is that a child transitions um, between primary and secondary school and they can start secondary school sort of without their trans history. In other words, they can start secondary school in stealth. And if you look at how, you know, the BBC has promoted now two um, uh, sort of fictional dramas about a child doing just that. One's an Australian drama, it came out I think, last year, first day. And the other one was a sort of online diary kind of uh, uh, a fictional account. Both were trans girls so boys who were stealth transitioning as they started secondary school and both programs are built on uh, typical childhood themes and worries about starting secondary school not fitting in not making any friends all of those things that would hook children in and this is a strategy of propaganda you know it, it's like get children in through those sort of um things that they, they will relate to and actually you're whacking them with a real political message and the political message is trans women are women um that's it it's a political message and the, so both of those dramas were promoted on um cbbc um and and in the school's guidance that's that's always a suggestion you might want to do this now without puberty blockers you can't you've got a you know and watching the drama first day you've got this actually a 14 year old trans star in australia one of the trans poster charts is playing the part of um hannah in this drama and uh is is a 12 year old in the drama but in real life is 14 and that child has to be on puberty blockers because that child looks like a a girl child and one of the things is that in primary school you can sort of get away with it because boys look like girls girls look like boys you can't tell the difference when they hit puberty um you know it's fine to in the case of uh, in, in UK schools, you've got a situation where a child is on puberty blockers, a child is male going in to use the, to the girls' toilets and changing rooms without the girls' knowledge or consent. So that's violation of girls' boundaries without them knowing about it, although they probably do, but nobody's saying it. And so that's a, that's, that's a huge violation um, and deception. But you can and the also again this the all sorts schools toolkit says that if a, if a parent complains and says my daughter feels uncomfortable getting changed in front of a, a boy that the parents and the girl must be told that he was assigned male at birth but is in in every other respect a girl so they are <clears throat> uh that's the answer to that one so they must accept that this child with a penis is a, is literally a girl trans women are women um so that you know you you can sort of still see that if this child looks like a child and looks quite feminine as boys boys do 
Now, imagine that situation where you've got a hulking great six foot three, broad shouldered, drop voice, Adam's apple kid, teenage boy, and you're saying he may have been assigned male at birth, but in all other respects, he's a girl. And the parents are going to go, mate, you know. Well, it's also important for people listening to understand that this is a longer story that even goes back to Toronto and Kenneth Zucker. Remember mm -hmm. how he was, gosh, he was practically frog marched out of his place of employment at KMH in Toronto for having discussed desistance. And desistance, he was able to show, scientifically speaking, <laughs> uh, through a study, that desistance is very much linked to has the child commenced or not with puberty blockers. And that proved to be quite a revolutionary statement to make, although that statement was made on the roots of investigation, scientific investigation within the CAMH itself. He was fired. He later won a lawsuit against them. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen many times, even over the past year, where false statements about gender, puberty blockers and desistance have been made, even in peer reviewed journals, the lie has been allowed to be repeated. So you're dealing with parents and, and school boards and government institutions that are all battling the whirlwinds of various lies being forcefully put out there to confuse us, us all. And it starts with, with, with affirmation. So you, every stage of this for children, and, and it really bothers, you know, these activist groups that campaign say, you know, a, 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 a man with a penis is a woman. He doesn't have to take hormones, he doesn't have to do anything, he's a woman. If he identifies as such, whereas with children, it's like um, medical intervention at earlier ages as possible. And this is why the Tavistock started their puberty blocker trial, because of the pressure from groups like mermaids and parents associated with mermaids and gyres and... Uh, <clears throat> So you start with affirmation, every single stage creates the next one. Affirmation and social transition, you make it as difficult as possible, as you possibly, possibly can for that child to outgrow that gender dysphoria. You try to keep, you're trying to keep them trans. And then you get to puberty, you need those puberty blockers. If you're going to go in stealth in your secondary school or you're going to, and the whole, pre, the whole premise that puberty blockers is based on is a false premise. Children do not need time. We do not need to buy time for children to, to decide whether they are a girl or a boy. That was decided at birth. You know, that's not a choice you have. That's the whole false premise that they're built on. Anyway, they, so you need puberty blockers. And of course, then we know that puberty blockers almost 100% go on to cross sex hormones at age 16. They're then, you know, if they've if they've had puberty blockers at time of stage two and they get they're sterilized that so you lose sexual function the whole of their adult life and and uh, um you know sexual and romantic relationships are are uh, harmfully impacted in ways that children cannot possibly understand because they're not at the life stage where those things are important yet or mean anything to them which is the whole issue of of, of informed consent that came up in the carabelle case so the puberty blockers for the transitioning of children are absolutely central now once you've got rid of puberty blockers the whole house of card cards falls down so it, it it's that big it's that big they held such a central position in the in the whole 
uh, transitioning of children um, issue. Um, so I think it will have uh, a global impact. It has to, um, and that everything now must be questioned um, because it's it's a kind of cruelty to to. To, to, to tell a child that he's a girl or his childhood and then he starts developing into a man. Um, the, the, the psychological and, and mental health issues, I mean, I think it's a mental health issue anyway that we're creating in children because we're teaching them to be disassociated from their bodies. And once you say, what we, what we said with gender, replacement of sex with gender, is we've changed the biological to the cultural. In our societal definition of what women, men and women are. We, we are now cultural, we're not biological. And what that means is that the body is now nothing. The body is irrelevant. And once you say the body is irrelevant and thinking about children's bodies, the reality is, 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 a, is an abstract idea and the body is nothing. Once you say that, you can abuse the body. And they, you know, in the school's guidance, they treat the body the same as a, as, as a suit of clothes. You know, if you want to socially transition, you can change your clothes. If you want to medically transition, you can change your body. So the body is, is treated as, 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 you know, a thing like your clothes are. You can just get a designer body. And that's what happens when you say the body is worthless. The body means nothing. The reality is in your head. The reality is not grounded in your body and therefore we can do whatever we want to your body it, it's so uh, I, it's so dangerous and and inhuman it's a dehumanizing movement well you've had first-hand experience right around the time you and i first met you uh were involved with the consultation meeting the nhs public consultation meeting with polly carmichael and bernadette wren at the tavistock right can you tell us about what their responses to this? I mean, these are our oh, practitioners, okay. um, uh, physicians who have ostensibly an interest in safeguarding children, but it doesn't read that way altogether. Uh, right. Okay. That was a different. I went along to the NHS. The NHS consultation meeting was in London in, I think, 2016. And that was about the service specific specification. That's what, what's been going on now. Uh, with the gender identity service, the the, um, the NHS uh, did like uh, you know an investigation which was due actually. They, they, it was it was it was uh, planned. Uh, we should have got the results before Christmas. We haven't had them, but I went along and I I did a campaign at the time to get everybody to respond because there was a public consultation about the service specifications specifically for the Tavistock. Uh, clinic, uh, the Child and Adolescent Gender Identity Development Service, and we had a big impact. The results of that were published by the NHS, and there was a lot of public and professional uh, uh, um, concern within, you know, the, the sort of percentages of people uh, questioning it was quite high, uh, and I think it was the result of the campaign that I did on Facebook actually respond to this consultation, respond to this consultation. So that was a, that was a good result. Um, but but still, the service specification went ahead, and um, it wasn't changed much. Um, um, and that's what is you know has been looked at over the last year. Results should be coming. Um, 
So that was one thing. And at that meeting, I asked a question and, and it was full of, of the other trans activist groups and older male trans activists. I think this is a huge issue here about the older male trans activists have really pushed this uh, sort of transition and puberty blockers saying, you know, if I was a child now, I'd really want puberty blockers. Well, this is the group that didn't suffer gender dysphoria in, in childhood anyway. You know, the kids, the boys who, who have, have gender dysphoria in childhood are the homosexual boys. It's, it, you know, some heterosexual teenage boys, that, that's not unheard of. But for the younger children, they are they're, they're the homosexuals. The, the heterosexual transsexuals, the autogynophiles are the older, later transitioners. And I think there's been an awful lot of influence from these older transsexual autogynophiles who are saying, are pushing for puberty blockers, saying that's what I would have done. And they've lived a life of, you know, full sexual and romantic relationship enjoyment, full sexual function, fertility, their fathered children. And they are promoting the sterilization and loss of sexual function for, for other people's children. And they have no right to be involved in this area at all. They're not uh, uh, quite apart from teenage girls and, 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 and their understanding of what's going on there. Uh, anyway, so that NHS consultation meeting in London, I asked the question, and there was sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, clinicians, Polly Carmichael, there was, um, yeah, she was there actually, did meet her there. Uh, but it was also um, people from various adult gender clinics, uh, the NHS. And I asked the question um, about detransitioners and people who regret their transition. And I was told that we don't like the word regret or detransition. Uh, we, we see it as another step on the gender journey. And I noticed this happening at the Tavistock. The conferences that I went to at the Tavistock generally end with some service users um, or ex-service users talking. And what really struck me, if you look out for these things, the tales of past sexual abuse, I mean, these came up again and again, or past trauma, and you'd get ex, you know, females saying, well, I identify as a boy, I took uh, testosterone, I, I had a double mastectomy, and now I'm thinking maybe I'm more non-binary. I don't identify as a man anymore. And I'm thinking, you know, you have just done all this to your body and that's gonna have like lifetime impact. You never had to do, you know, you never had to do that. You you were always non-binary. We're all non-binary. You know, we're all individuals. We're, nobody's 100% feminine or 100% masculine. And, you know, and yet their acceptance of it, I thought they are already being sold this message that you cannot regret transition because it was the right thing to do at that time. And you hear, you know, the ex-service users were saying that. I don't regret it because it was the right thing at the time. And now I've changed and this is the right thing now. And I'm thinking, no, you were, you were completely let down. You should not have had to. You know, you should have not have been sold this myth and given this treatment that has had such a um, devastating, well, you know, I mean, physically, just, um, you know, such a big impact on your life. You shouldn't have had to uh, damage your body for this. 
Well, there's been uh, a so collective first... effort by like your group and other women's groups that have pushed back on this, whether it's mm. from the perspective of childhood gender transition, uh, fourth wave now, transgender trend, mm. or Women's Place UK. Standing for women. <laughs> Resist resistors. Yes, and then uh, Nick, Nick Williams' group. Uh, oh, they're uh, brilliant. Fair play, fair play, Nick. In fact, Nick Williams from Fair Play came along to that, that uh, um, meeting with me. In, um, and I've been to a lot of these things alone. It's very, very hard when you're in a room, you know, a conference centre full of trans activists and you're the lone voice. It's really hard. Um, and Nick came along with me to this um, NHS consultation meeting. It was her first experience of going to a meeting like this. And she asked questions as well. She, she had a practice run with me and Nick's done a lot on her own since. But a uh, huge admiration for Nick. Um, she's done amazing work. And she did, she's, she's, she's done amazing work for me as well. She did some amazing work for me because she's a scientist. So I tend to, we, we did together a report on the Stonewall Schools report. Now this was a report that, that produced the figure of, I don't know, 48% suicide or whatever. And I, I'm a words person, Nick's a numbers person and she's a scientist. So I asked the questions and Nick crunched the numbers. Great team. And what we found out and what I suspected, and we compared it to their previous school report, which was in 2012, where they based it on, they collected data on the basis of biological sex. The 2017 report, they collected data based on gender identity. And their, their finding of this sort of suicidal ideation stat, which has been used everywhere, I suspected that was mostly girls. And we compared, we, we did a very thorough, and, 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 and Nick is very good at doing a proper sort of scientific study and not claiming too much and being very careful. And when we looked, we found, because they, they had an, an, an anomaly in their findings, which was every other survey shows that girls' mental health um, issues are going up the, the, the gender gap or sex gap is widening girls are having sort of mental health crisis which is increasing and the Stonewall school report showed the opposite that girls had stayed about the same or or, or it was a, a complete anomaly compared to other studies and, and when we when we crunched the numbers we found that the suicide step was 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 uh, almost 100 well it was most, mostly girls and there were girls who i who but but they were hidden because they were identifying as boys and this is a huge issue for me that uh, um the that girls girls mental health issues are being hidden by calling them trans and also conflated with contemporary issues of sexism, harassment, mm. Mm. bullying that's going on within schools, society, even universities. These issues are not being addressed because it seems that there's this pushing to transgender. So mm -hmm. we can't discuss social issues because it's transgender. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the meeting that I really met, uh, I met Polly Carmichael and Bernadette Wren and Sarah Davidson from the Tavistock was a, a conference called Hot Topics in Child Health, which I've got a report of that on, on the website. And that was a conference that was organised in conjunction with Gyres and Mermaids. Mm -hmm. And 
it was it was quite a good conference actually even though Giles did a presentation and and the sort of science about we're born with an innate gender identity and proof of that which is non-existent and Peter Tatchell came in did something about transphobia which is really out of place um but we had Thomas Steensma who's the the sort of top really recognized researcher from the Netherlands there and we had uh, you know there was some good stuff and I stood up and asked a question about the rapid onset uh, of the girls, uh, the huge increase in girls transitioning. And, and I got a, a you know, sort of uh, you know, response from Polly Carmichael on the panel. And, and in the break, um, uh, Polly Carmichael came and, 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 and actually Sarah David, all of them were saying, oh, we, we read your website. It's fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's really important. And uh, uh, so they they knew about me and they knew you know they were reading it and were very welcoming of it and I I you know over the years I sort of built a good relationship and um, uh, you know it's, uh, the conferences in fact mentioning the sheep studies um, there was a conference I think it was 2017 2018 called the science of gender and that one oh yes Evans, I remember that yeah, Neil Evans, who did that study, spoke about it and showed us and, and videos of sheep. And uh, it, it was incredible, actually. It was That was a very good conference. There was quite a range of, of, of voices there. Some of, some of it was awful, but it was quite a balance. And um, this had such a huge impact, this presentation. I mean, he, he actually said, you know, this is the first time that he's heard in medicine where... A, a drug is tested on children before it's tested on animals. Uh, Tavistock is still saying, well, the um, even in the court case, even after that, that, that using puberty blockers is safe because they've been used for, for precocious puberty. Now, there's questions about that anyway, if you, as you've mentioned about Lupron and the, the devastating long-term effects on this group of precocious puberty kids who are mostly girls, again. Um, but, so, uh, that's never, never mentioned, but the fact that you're you're blocking a child's natural puberty, you're stopping a child going through their natural puberty is a completely different stage of development and a completely different use of drug. And it's used for psychological issues rather than at least precocious puberty is a sort of, you know, physical, biological condition that does create problems. And there's an argument there, you know, uh, but in, in this case, you're treating issues in the head with with physical uh, and, and at that stage of development you know that you're blocking that child's puberty forever that that child will never go through puberty because the overwhelming likelihood is they'll go straight to cross-sex hormones which are not the right hormones for their body they will not give them the opposite sex puberty they will not go through puberty these children will become adults without ever having gone through puberty and i think psychologically and on every other level but physically um which is beyond imagining for me why, why, you know, it's really playing God, isn't it? We'll, we'll make boys into girls uh, medically. It's really, really playing God. Anyway, um, the science of gender, that conference, when, when Neil Evans said that, uh, there was a sort of audible gasp in the, in the room. And clinicians, there were a lot of clinicians in the audience who'd come along to learn things. And, 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 and there were questions, and, and you could see, these clinicians were genuinely worried. What, 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 what do I do now? I didn't know this. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's something to think about. That's not, not something that I can make a comment on. I just have to give the information. And um, 
yeah, it's it, it sort of, um, but you know, it was it, it was uh, it was like, uh, wow, what, what what are we doing here? We 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 haven't even tested this on animals first, and then we're finding that some cognitive uh, effects are not reversed if you stop taking puberty blockers. You you know, puberty is a window for so many parts of your development. You've got a window in puberty. If you miss it, that's it. It's over. Well, this aside from the fact that there is zero scientific evidence of of this even working, even amongst adults, let's say. Mm. I mean, where was the science based in puberty? I'm sorry, in giving cross-sex hormones. That was steeped in 1950, middle America, where women were a symptom. And therefore, if a man felt like he wanted to wear a dress, then doctors were treating that as a gender incongruity bizarrely, but true to the times of the 1950s. And, and today, that kind of ideology has been almost copied and pasted, uh, skipping, as we mentioned earlier, entirely the 70s and 80s. Uh, and, you know, to think that Thatcher's England or Reagan's America was somehow more gender liberated than today, it's, it's both true and shocking, right? So here we are with these this quackery of, of medicine going on to treat a condition that's not even been verified in all levels. I mean, as a psychological or psychiatric condition, okay, one could argue with what social sciences actually mean in terms of verifiable truths. But on the other hand, we are treating a feeling that's completely 100% codified by the social, not by the somatic, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you feel like you have a stomachache, we can localize that. We can even take it, say, uh, a, C, a C scan of it and see, is there something in her stomach? Did this child eat a marble? But gender identity entirely rests on the social stereotype of what gender means. So it's this very strange, I refer to it as a Moebius strip, that kind of odd mathematical design that, you know, no matter how you twist it, it goes back on itself. There's no exit. And, and then, you know, in the field that you have been working for many years with children, this adds an extra layer of child protection and adults and professional adults' responsibility towards these children. Now, the Tavistock and Portman uh, clinics got under fire with Newsnight, uh, Maitland's, you know, coverage of that, uh, her actually being hand-slapped about some of her comments not so long ago as well. And... Is, and then the vast exit of 40 practitioners uh, in recent time from the Tavistock. What finally turned things for the Tavistock within the public eye? Do, do you know what? I think Michael Biggs, his work, I, I really do. I, and I'm I, one thing that I've um, uh, been really pleased about um, with transgender trend is that we've attracted the best writers and um we've attracted the you know support of really solid people and, and professionals and i think it i think people sort of stood back for a year to sort of check that we weren't some religious bigots and notice that you know we have good good analysis and, and we come from a point of reality and child protection um you know my motivation is children my motivation is all the odd kids as I was, you know, the, the, the vulnerable kids. 
who have you know who have been totally exploited here and totally groomed and i it breaks my heart anyway michael biggs um we were, were looking at the um uh I, 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 that's right he'd invited me to speak at oxford and and then that got cancelled because you know um because they always do we finally met up at uh, yeah, uh, but we finally met at. I spoke at a woman's place meeting in Oxford in I don't know was it 2016 or something. I met Michael there, and um, we were working on looking at the puberty blockers trial because this was a key area that that we'd seen, and and I'd been collecting through the newspaper reports of Polly Carmichael making comments. I think it was in so the the puberty blockers trial result of pressure from the activist groups started in 2011 and, and then the, the ethical the, 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 the sort of ethical view the health research authority they had to put it through again ethical approval for it so that whole process was really really uh, concerning to me how they got it um that was one thing but once they got that ethical ethical permission to do it um that was, they started in 2011. Now, Polly Carmichael, the, 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 the aim was to reduce the age to age 12. And the plan and the, the rationale was to have puberty blockers earlier. Now, I know, actually, that the activist agenda is, is totally um, uh, a, a sort of superficial appearance, cosmetic appearance is more important than biological function and because then you can transition a child in stealth. And that, that, and I think there's an awful lot of political gain to have children who've been through that process. It will affect women's sports because you can say then that, well, this particular male child has not laid down testosterone in puberty. You, you get a more blurred line then for all of the issues that come up later if you've got this cohort of children who are growing up without having gone through puberty. I mean, I really think that is a big part of it. But anyway, um, the, the puberty blockers trial at the Tavistock was absolutely key to, the, to all of this. And, and they'd reduced the, the age from 16. So, so in before 2011, puberty blockers were seen as a sort of, I think, last resort treatment. It was for the children who had experienced gender dysphoria, from early childhood, which is the common, that's the only cohort we know, we know anything about. There's very limited research, but that's the only cohort we know nothing about. Or, you know, apart from Lisa Lippmann's study, which is fantastic, we know nothing about, we, we, we've got a lot of ideas about why, but we, we haven't um, looked at the uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria girls and, and some boys as well, I think, come into that group, uh, particularly gay boys and, and autistic boys come into that group so I can see the same thing happening with boys but it's mostly girls and um, clearly for very very different reasons and very very much social and cultural reasons of these vulnerable girls going online and finding the new YouTube stars um, selling them this 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 wonderful way of escaping womanhood um, so Puberty blockers were given at age 16. Now, by that stage, at least a child had gone through puberty, had established their fertility, and but had also developed secondary sex characteristics. So we're already looking like the sex they were. And I think it's that what that is what, and I again I think at the 
looking at the parents they don't want their they don't want this you know there's a lot of i think i'm sure there is a lot of homophobia because we all know don't we those effeminate boys who are most likely to grow up to be gay um but you don't want your little boy growing up to be a sort of hulking man in a dress you want them to be visually I, i'm sure you know if, 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 if we're thinking about parents who are quite invested in their children in that way i think there is a lot of lot of that there but so it didn't work puberty blockers at age 16 because a lot of the um appearance were you know become established as male or female so down to age 12 you're going to a stage where you can get children before the secondary sex characteristics start developing, before fertility starts developing. And very quickly, Polly Carmichael was talking in the Daily Mail in 2014 about the trial has been a success and we're continuing with it. And at some point during those first two years, they dropped the age uh, from 12, age 12 to Tanner stage two of puberty, which could be at age 10. So in the space of a couple of years, we got it down from 16 to 10. And that's really the only way that puberty blockers work, work for the activists um, to sort of continue the deception for the child themselves and for, you know, everybody. And so we were looking at this and sort of collating the evidence. And Michael Biggs went and researched and found this interim, an internal report of uh, children of this first cohort on puberty blockers after a year and found really, really concerning results. So for example, you know, there's no benefit. There, there, there was, there was um, uh, in fact, worse outcomes, particularly for girls. But the, the big one was that on the child behavior checklist, there was a significant increase in children ticking. I, 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 I feel more like um, wanting to hurt, kill myself. Huge, huge. I mean, it wasn't published, it wasn't, so Michael wrote his research report for Transgender Trenders that was published on Transgender Trend. And uh, I was so grateful to him for that because it's such an important um, issue. And then I had a lot of sort of background stuff and Newsnight um, uh, um, uh, broadcast it. And Michael Biggs was on Newsnight and it came out. So that was fantastic so that reached a, a, a bigger audience and interestingly I went along to a conference oh gosh it was Joanna Olson Kennedy people in the US will know jo Joanna Olson Kennedy who's the sort of gender. if a child wears barrettes then it must no, be a girl oh sorry that's uh, no, the that's other Diane one Aaron, that's yes, Diane yes, yes. yes 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 I confused um, them all that's right <laughs> oh it was like a, a, it was like an evangelical meeting of children know their gender and and yeah. oh it was just yeah. and actually uh Polly Carmichael and Bernadette Wren were there on the panel along with Jay Stewart of Gendered Intelligence and Susie Green of Mermaids and um Polly Carmichael and Bernadette Wren were good at that conference. They were very cautious and were, were in a very difficult position because they had, you know, evangelicals around them. I mean, jo Joanna Olson Kennedy is the one who's saying, yes, you cut your breasts off at age 13. If you regret it later, you can always go and get another pair. You know, she's, she's so far extreme and was totally supported by Susie Green and, and 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 Jay Stewart and I know you know being on a panel with with with, with those people I think Polly Carmichael and Bernadette Wren did, did pretty well as the voice of caution. Um, 
but that was <laughs> that was the meeting where I think I think my relationship with Polly Carmichael soured. She's very angry with me for publishing Michael Biggs's piece. And I said to her, "Look, I, I I try to be very fair. I've written good stuff. When when the Tavistock are good, or I feel that they've." been cautious or, or spoken well I, I always credit them I don't want to make an enemy of, of you know I, I, I feel like credit where credit is due if there's some um, something that I agree with I'll say it um, um, but well, anyway well, one so that thing that came out of Michael's work both with transgender trend and then he went on to yes. write a paper was this and it's it has a huge overlap with the Kira Bell case I'm going to quote what he wrote here from his published paper I, I can even link it in the description uh, glasses okay here we go he says the Tavistock Trust now boasts of winning 1.3 million pounds to conduct research with UCL and two other universities into the long-term outcomes for children who use the service including both those who go on to use physical intervention such as hormone blockers and those who do not he's quoting the Tavistock that last bit given the failure of JIDS and UCL to publish the comprehensive data they have been gathering for eight years, why fund them to collect more? End quote. Now, this reminds me of what the judge noted in the in the Kira Bell and mother of the trans identified child case, where <clears throat> the judge noted that there were not accurate or good records being kept at all. And I'm going back to Michael's piece because he, right in that same paragraph here, he says, this is so important for anyone who's been doing research in the social sciences, uh, how can JIDS and UCL now objectively analyze data from the experiment when they naturally have a vested interest in justifying their longstanding policy of treating gender dysphoria with human gonotropins, or, or I'm sorry, GNRHA, sorry. Mm. So what, what we're seeing is first, a conflict of interest of all these organizations that are getting money uh, from various sources to continue. There's no conflict of interest oversight. And then we're seeing a lack of records being kept, which of course can allow them to prolong the myth that theirs is working and that we're wrong, for instance. Do, do you know, it's one thing I can't get my head around. They did this study. They didn't even track outcomes. I cannot believe that such a, I mean, because it's hard to study in this area. It, 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 all the research is, is, is either low quality or very low quality. Uh, it's hard to have a control group um, because it sort of obviously affects. So, um, so the, the, and, and they didn't do their absolute best to make it as robust as studies, but the fact they didn't track them. I, I, I cannot believe that this has been going on. And is, is this a real experiment? It is, you know, um, and, and so shoddy in such an important area with treatment that has such, you know, it, such devastating results physically. And so, such serious results and, and unknown results that we don't know the long-term outcomes for these kids. We've never done this with children before. We don't know what an impact this will have on, on, on their later lives, um, you know, physically and health-wise. It, 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 you know, it, it's got to be harmful because we're doing something so... Uh, uh, I can't even think of the word so wrong to children's healthy bodies they were healthy bodies you know they began as healthy bodies 
and we have we have introduced ill health. Well, can you talk to us about what you see happening now? I mean, this is a huge win, the Cura Bell case, and you've had a huge yeah. hand in this. What is your mission now? Okay, I'll just go back to Michael Biggs. So I just want, really want to credit him because I think his 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 dogged persistent research was brilliant and he's written he's written five pieces for us which we put together on a pdf you can find it on the website that we put it on the front page uh, it's a really fantastic documentation of that puberty blockers trial it's all in there and you read it and i know all this stuff but i am shocked even me when i read it through i'd really recommend you go to the website read through that document that Michael Biggs has produced. I'm enormously grateful to him for doing it for us. So that leads us to um, the Kira Bell case. Now, Susan Evans is, I think, the real hero here. She she was questioning this in 2004. And that was when the Tavistock were giving puberty blocks at age 16, she saw. And so she was the first whistleblower. She brought the case, did all, loads of work to get that case together. So, um, and then, uh, and, and and with Mrs. A, also, you know, had to be anonymous because of a child, but incredibly brave. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So, and then Kira Bell comes along. And, I, you know, when I started, I thought, oh, it'd be 10 years before, and then somebody will, will sue the NHS. I never thought it would happen this quickly. And Kira Bell comes along and, and, and says, you know, I could do it. And of course, it, it's it's a better case if you've got somebody who's been damaged by the treatment. And Carabelle has just been an amazing, amazing, courageous young woman who has stood up and said, I, I, I made a mistake. And how hard that is. She's only 23. I don't think I'd, you know, age 23, say to the world, I was so stupid as to think I was a boy. Now, of course, I think that's not Kira's fault. Kira was told everywhere she looked that she was a boy um, and adults let her down. Adults everywhere, in, in schools, in government, in the media, everywhere online, let her down. And, and for all the talk about how long the waiting lists are for trans-identified folks, she had very few interactions with any medical professionals before they mm. started her in the process. And nobody uncovered her, you know, troubled background and her mental health issues, really serious things. I mean, she's a lesbian. Nobody uncovered any of that uh, and her reasons for wanting uh, to, to transition. It is. I mean, this should be a therapeutic service. We, everything possible should be done to explore and discover what is the particular issue behind it for this particular child before you go anywhere near the issue of would it you know would it help to transition it's just so it, it, it's a really it's a real abnegation of duty from the health service to do no you know do no harm it's a scandal it's an absolute medical scandal I, I can't think of anything that compares with this as a medical scandal and I think this needs to you know one day um uh, really come out and it will do it will do one day so Kira uh, um, is um, uh, not only has she got such courage, but she's such a brilliant spokesperson. She's so uh, measured and calm, and 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 she's got her head together, Kira. Um, and she knows exactly where she's coming from. She's uh, she's coming from a place of wanting to protect 
kids coming up behind her and she will protect thousands and thousands you know eventually i know that this is having an impact in the us uh, already it, uh, and it has to all globally so what she has done with her own personal um mistake uh, uh, or 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 um you know she's had, she's she's had, the impacts on her in her life are significant and difficult she's you know she, she's got a difficult journey herself and yet she's done something to prevent it happening to other people which i hope gives her a real um a sense of per, you know she's achieved oh god she has she's changed the world she's achieved something and that that helps um and uh, she is you know representative of the carelessness and the arrogance um, uh, of the medical profession and what that results in if you don't take care. And we know there are so many like Kara and she represents no homogenous group by any means. Everybody's got their different story and their different. But there's, a, there's um, you know, when I started out, all the detransitioners who were speaking out were in the States because I think the States was a little bit ahead of us in affirmation and 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 all of that about five years ahead um, but there's been an absolute explosion over the last couple of years of uh, so many detransitioners on twitter now they're speaking out they're making organized there always were detransition support groups when i started out but there are more now and uh we, they're getting into the mainstream press um laura dodsworth did a really fantastic piece for the sunday times last year on detransition is really beautiful photographs and uh, powerful women. I just, I, I, I really feel for for detransitioners that um, uh, we we they are in a very particular place and a very particular personal journey, and we cannot claim them. No group can claim, you know, they're not a homogenous group. We have to be very careful to allow it's almost like watchful waiting for the transition you know, we cannot just claim them for our own cause we we, we have to um, be really really respectful of this group and the courage that they have in in speaking out and speaking their story to the world because they know they'll be attacked by trans activists they're not part of the narrative and um so that and you know that people the, the the activists don't want them to exist and and don't want them to speak so their courage is enormous um because kira especially for 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 taking on this case and and she did it and we we, we not only because when i mean the evidence was so clear all the evidence was presented in court and the tavistock don't have any i mean it says absolutely as simple as that they don't have the evidence to support what they're doing and the case rested on evidence it didn't rest on ideology it didn't rest on human rights it didn't rest on the right to an identity it didn't rest on anything except the hard facts medical evidence and um and and the court when you looked at all the witness statements from both sides i mean on paper it was clear but still, there was an issue that children over the age of 16 are presumed to have be able to have informed consent. But we even got the 16 and 17 year olds that they should also be uh, 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 you know, application made to court. Uh, and I couldn't I, I, I didn't dare hope for 
a total win. I, I actually just, after the two-day hearing, I, I tried to forget about it because you, you just never know these days, do you, how things are going to go. Even though it's so clear in court, um, it was I, I didn't dare go there. So it, when the result came out, it was, I, I'm still processing it. I'm still processing the enormity of it and the enormity of the victory. But the other thing is, the other, the other victory for me is that, um, yeah, I intervened in the case and, and, um, and did it uh, from the point of the cultural aspect, which is my area. And I think it, on the issue of informed consent, it's important to know the cultural influences and the information that children arrive at the clinic with. And therefore, are they then informed of other things, which they're not? So, for example, girls are, arrive at that clinic genuinely believing they're boys, genuinely believing they're boys because of all the cultural influences online, at school, everywhere. And the Tavis Rock doesn't do anything to tell them there are other ways of understanding yourself or other ways of conceptualising those feelings other than gender identity. So the Tavis Rock operates within the same ideology as these girls have been indoctrinated into um, and therefore, the, the, the girls are not. There's no way that any child is fully informed. Um, but I focused on the, the the sort of rapid onset girls group, and and but but not just girls, the the, the vulnerable children in that group, and um, included research about girls' mental health and and over you know um, and and girls growing up in society. Now, the particular pressures on girls that are different to boys and. Uh, uh, and the messages all children are getting now and how, how those have, have added to the the activist message and um, etc. So I think um, the evidence, so the evidence we had to pr produce our full witness statements. I, I, I don't know if this all, because, uh, you know, first of all, it was like a 6,000 words piece, which my brilliant legal team cut down to four points and applied to intervene. <laughs> Um, and then we, we got a directive from the judges saying they wanted the full witness statement and the full evidence bundle. And this was, um, you know, there was, there was a bit of a deadline um, that we had two really hot sunny weeks in August where the rest of you I think, were on the beach. And I was sitting here 24-7 um, doing this job. Uh, and um, we, we, you just, so we had, a, we had a deadline. We met it. We got the deadline and it was it was me and my legal team sort of, you know, rewriting it, then putting it into sort of a legal, you know, sort of document. We got the deadline. It was it really was 24-7 work. Um, Stonewall and Mermaids also applied to intervene and the judge gave them the same directive. All three of us had to do the same thing. They missed the deadline. Susie Green, Susie Green was on holiday. Um, they, they, they asked for a second deadline and missed that. And um, they are two, they're two big organisations, highly funded, lots of employees. I'm one person on my own doing this and with no funding. I care about the kids, you know, I advocate for, which is all the vulnerable kids, the gay and lesbian kids, the autistic kids, the ones from care homes, the, the you know, the ones with mental health issues. And I felt my role was, in a, 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 you know, apart from being an advocacy group for Kira, it was like I was advocating for all of those kids. And that was my role. And I had to get into court to, to defend them. And, and 
Stonewall Wall and Mermaids say that uh, these kids are more likely to commit suicide if they don't get puberty blockers. They couldn't even get their act together to get into court and, and, and defend those kids, even though it, that for them, you know, according to their narrative, it's that important. I, and I think that's an absolute disgrace. And the, the evidence they eventually presented, which wasn't finished even then, was um, irrelevant to the case, or it, it just repeated evidence that all, the court had already, it was already before the court. So another of my jobs was to read through the extensive evidence from our side to make sure I wasn't repeating any of it, because you have to bring something completely new. Um, and to me, that is, it, 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 it's hugely significant that uh, it shows that um, one side has evidence and the other doesn't, because the Stonewall and Mermaids um, witness statements were all, the, 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 you know, the usual emotional blackmail. These kids get bullied, it's hate crime, it's a human right to have an identity. And, and at every point, the, you know, the judge comes in and says, well, that's, that's not relevant to this case. That's a human rights issue. That's a different case. <laughs> You know, they didn't answer the question. They didn't even take enough care to answer the question. They didn't take enough care to get it in on time. And again, it's that arrogance that they've never had to, they've never been really held to account. They've never had to produce the evidence. They've produced their own flawed reports and said that's evidence, but they have never ever had to um, produce that evidence and then that they they expect to get what they wanted but i i felt like i, I was um seeing on twitter people saying oh the judges you know it's transphobic they're not letting in the the trans groups and and the reality is that the the the, the court bent over backwards to let them in but they didn't they didn't answer the question you know I, I, so i i think so that to me says well, why aren't the resignations? Why isn't Nancy, Nancy Kelly resigning? Why isn't Susie Green resigning? They failed those kids. They failed the kids they advocate for because they don't have the evidence for what they're saying. Why are they in schools? You know, why isn't the transgender trend guidance in every school? Right. I, so um, I, which it just really makes me laugh because I think they th thought they'd get rid of me very quickly. <laughs> In fact, you know, Stonewall have run a campaign consistently since that school got, school's guidance was published. I, I, it's on a blog. It's on the website. They have written to local authorities um, telling them not to use the guidance. They have told, heard a parent told me the sex education forum um, won't use transgender trend because we're in breach of the Equality Act. Who told you that, Stonewall? Stonewall have, um, and that statement of theirs um, saying that this transgender trend schools pack is deeply damaging has been repeated, repeated again and again to justify, uh, you know, it's it, 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 that statement is in a uh, brochure of the Tate Gallery in London. Uh, it was a gendered intelligence project um, about gender. And there's a whole section on hate groups. And I think they don't mention transgender trend by name, but they link to that statement of Stonewalls. So everybody can say transgender trend is an is a anti-trans hate group linked to Stonewall's statement saying that our school's guidance is, is deeply damaging. And that's their proof. <laughs> so it's been used, but Stonewall have done everything they can behind the scenes to stop 
transgender trans schools guidance getting into schools and what really really makes me amused is that schools are using it there's nothing Stonewall can do about it so if I feel a bit overwhelmed about things and you know um oh, you know uh, all I have to think is well a school somewhere in the UK is using the guidance and finding it useful and nobody can do anything about that the other big win so Kira's win is I can't I can't tell you how that changes everything <laughs> The other win this year, because my, my two areas are health and education, that's health. Education, you've got the new Department for Education in the UK issued a statement about basically um, not teaching born in the wrong body in schools and not using advocacy groups that do so. Now, I do a lot of work behind the scenes and um, um, and that was my that that's my guidance and that is now going into schools and um you know the next stage of that is to ensure that that guidance becomes statutory and we've got a lot of work to do with the department for education to because they still link to stonewall having said that that those advocacy groups who promote that shouldn't be going into schools they actually have a link this is on their sex and relationships education guidance to Stonewall who are the sort of worst culprits in that area so we've got, we've got a lot of work to do but I see you know when I look back over this five years of of of, of doing transgender trend I I think well you know we've won we've got the CAS We've got a, 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 a now a major review of, of, of the Tavistock Jews, with which is led by Hilary Cass, and I'm a stakeholder in that. And um, uh, that's what I wanted right from the start. When I, you know, at the end of this year, I was, you know, I had five aims to begin with, and I'm, I'm ticking, I'm ticking them all off this year. So it feels like this is the year we won. And from now on, I, I think your question was about move, moving forward. We have an awful lot of damage to undo. But I think it's a, we're going into a different phase. I think we've got the big ones. We've certainly got the first steps in education. We've got a lot further to go. We've still got the Equality and Human Rights Commission national guidance due to come out at some point. So we've got a lot. We've still got a lot of work to do. I, I think one of the things I'm most proud of, actually, of what we've done is, apart from this, the school's materials, is the publication of My Body Is Me by Rachel Rooney and Jessica Olberg and that book we, we were working on this for quite a while what what you know what what can we in fact Jessica Olberg and I were, were were working on it and then Rachel Rooney appears and produces the perfect poem the perfect book and the message says it all my body is me that's and it's a book for primary years, sort of early years, primary years, because it starts there. And we wanted to produce an alternative to, again, an alternative to all of the, I, I counted, I think, 38 trans books for early years primary in the UK. And it is really, you know, it's absolutely flown, this book. It's a brand. It's like children absolutely love it. The message is so simple. And it's, again, that's something that's had a huge impact and for us we are working on producing more resources we've got so many projects in development at the moment of alternative resources and they're resources that are slightly older kids about sex and gender that will 
uh, uh, work for autistic kids and that's the group that I'm um, I'm really really concerned about autistic kids and I'm really really concerned about children in care um, so that the, um, and, and really sort of children from very vulnerable backgrounds so we've got resources in and, and I think it's going to be a I feel like for the past five years I've been in a fight it's been a really dirty fight it's been a David and Goliath fight and it's taken a lot uh, um, and but now I think we're entering a different phase where we consolidate on our wins we've got a lot of damage to undo but we have the essential victories behind us and now we build on them so hopefully hope, hopefully for me it's going to be a little bit more um, uh, sort of enjoy you know, I have enjoyed it actually I, I, I always feel like you know when I feel really really stressed and I'm being harassed and bullied which is just constant but um but but if I wasn't doing this I'd feel worse because I would see what was going on and I would feel powerless to do anything so I think I also come back to I'd rather be doing something about it than not you know um but yes I, I hope for me it's going to be a little bit more um of a, a fight's over and and now we get on in, in, in just producing the resources that are really needed to balance and take the place of all this very harmful stuff that's going into schools. I was just on Twitter and I saw a tweet that was put out um, just a little bit ago by someone whose work I really like in certain areas. And she has a, a thread about a fundraiser to produce 10 kids books for LGBT issues. And she goes through the list of what's covered in this proposal for these books, a protagonist with cerebral palsy who dreams of swimming. There's a trans dragon for, in parentheses, trans dragons are dragons. And I'm thinking, well, so much of the battle is won, but there's a lot of this that has been dumbed down even by people like, her, who was an Oxbridge professor not so long ago, and I think might still be, although that's no longer in her bio. Um, what is the link here between academia pumping this up? I mean, anyone who's been on the scene for half a day sees it very quickly, that there are trans activists in government and public policy machines. They've started NGOs, left, right, and center. They've even started things that you can't even dream of. I think they've personally, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think part of the linguistic hopscotch has been on purpose to keep us snapping on our feet. You know, like we we can't deflect it quickly enough. It's like Tron versus Battlestar Galactica versus Star Wars. They are throwing out these rays of nonsense <laughs> at us and it's coming. A lot of it, like a massive amount of it is coming from academia. So no matter what you do on the ground, we're screwed as long as these academicians like Sally Hines are producing stuff about, you know, agender ice cream mode. Do you know what I think? I, I feel like I've spent the last five years spinning a hundred plates while playing whack-a-mole. And that's why you get so overwhelmed. And I think this issue is causing mental health problems amongst women who can see what's going on. And I think it will with this generation of children as well. But the academia, it was so fantastic to see uh, Dr. Kathleen Stock being awarded an OBE for her services to higher education. To me, I, I think we don't expect um, anything anymore, do we? We, we, we? You know, again, when there's a rapist in a woman's prison, you just think, well, that's, you know, can't get much more extreme than that. Like, life is just 
unreal and we can you know we know how uh, the female sex is being erased and, and, and we're called bigots for challenging that and, and it, I think it's got enormous existential and psychological effects on women and this for me that when I saw the news about Kathleen Stock it felt like a restoration of faith that there is justice and there is fairness and she is a symbol for all of us women who are speaking out on this issue and she has been given this award uh, this honor and that will do I think that that will have an enormous impact on women's mental health for, for, for that there are some fantastic women speaking up in academia uh, and Kathleen Stock produces this <laughs> brilliant re report of of all the mad mad language uh, that's 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 being um used in universities and this is another area of, so actually for me um uh, you know I've, I've worked with my area's been sort of children and adolescents but I've always been really concerned about the uh sort of 17 year olds who go straight to the adult clinic and sort of 17 to 25 year olds so they're the kids who they're young adults, they, they're off to university, we know what that's like, I started smoking at university, you start doing things because you, um, you, you know, again, you're desperate to find your tribe, your group, your fit in, you're vulnerable, you're away from home for the first time, you're incredibly vulnerable age group, and you completely throw, you, you completely slip through the net in terms of treatment, because you go to an adult clinic, you're affirmed, you're sent on your way with your hormones, you know, and, and, and the universities are full of queer theory. Uh, queer theory and identity politics so you've got and for girls now and talking about feminism you've got uh, uh liberal feminism is you know sort of sex work is empowering um it's, it's all it's not feminism it's identity politics they center trans women trans women are women uh um it's like if you if you critique the sex industry you're horophobic and when we're talking about that uh a development of sexuality sex workers you know just stonewall is supporting sex workers now it's almost like that's a particular sexuality um and it all goes into kink and but you can't kink shame anybody you must accept anybody's sexual practice you're not allowed to have any judgment or your own point of view about what might be you know uh, 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 <clears throat> you've got to accept anything any fetish any kink any you know um so the what girls go into having not been taught about much about maybe they're taught about the suffragettes but they're not really taught about any feminist real feminist theories in schools then they go into universities and the feminist societies are all <clears throat> really queer and identity politics societies they're not feminism and so that girls are let down at every point they're, they're, they're being led to believe that real and this is why I think you're getting so many young women supporting the trans movement they have really been indoctrinated into this right from the start and and I think girls are I mean you know teenagers are very concerned with social justice issues it's a really big deal when you're a teenager and you're idealistic and you want to support a cause and uh, and then when you get to university, it becomes more political. And I thought, you know, when I was when I was working on the No More Page Three campaign, and I worked with those women, that group of women, for two and a half years. We were really good mates. We loved each other. We had a great time. 
And then I put out my first piece about, uh, I published my first piece because I was free of the campaign. I could write what I wanted. And there was a huge, I mean, I was dropped. Basically, I was dropped. And uh, it was enormously, in, this was my gang, and it was enormously hurtful. It took me a long time to get over it. I still, you know, it's, it's, I still see them getting together now, and, 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 and I, it's hurtful. And I thought at the time um, that if it's this difficult for me, um, you know, an older woman, to be ostracised from her gang, from her tribe, Teenage girls don't stand a chance. Girls at university don't stand a chance because that is the most important thing at that stage of life. You cannot expect a young woman to challenge this um, because the risk is too great. You know, ostracization from the group is the end. So we've got, that's the situation we're in. Um, I think when when this generation grows up a bit, they, they might start, um, questioning it but it doesn't surprise me at all that the supporters of this are, are, are young women because I, I do think that that young women are particularly susceptible and, and also socialized to be more caring and, and and to support and be kind be kind um Well, we saw this with the attacks on J.K. Rowling and the more yeah, recent yeah. attack on Kathleen Stock. I was totally cracking up. I had no idea this was going on because I don't live on social media far from it. I don't have the time. I've got two small children and 2020, need I say more? But someone sent me the link and it, it says one of the critiques was Kathleen Stock getting an OBE is the perfect example of why I don't feel safe in academia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's the rinse and repeat of words are murder, disagreement is murder, mm. women are who think that gender is not a physical uh, somatic reality are mm -hmm. murderers, Hitler, right wing, Christian, this and that. You've, you've heard it all. We've all been mm. called it. And I just thought, well, wherever you stand on, you know, Americans won't understand this uh, discourse about why it's controversial in the UK with the order of the British Empire or others. But wherever you stand on that, even if you are against it in terms of accepting or not, the fact is, is there's nothing unsafe about accepting it. And I thought Istok's comments and her using the platform to speak more, it was brilliant, frankly. And yet women can't, um, there's an expression in English and now I've forgotten it, but it's something like you can't win for losing. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, no matter what women like stock or the interaction that happened about two weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, with Kathleen Stock, Rosa Friedman, yes. Alice Sullivan, these three women made huge advances by saying the most politely stated but patently true statements. And then you go to Twitter and it's the same thing all over again. They were so brilliant, weren't they? We have such brilliant women in this country and in Scotland as well, uh, I, I, Wales, Ireland, such brilliant women. I think um, some people say, because the UK has been at the forefront um, of, of challenging this. And um, and why is that? I, I don't know. I think we're quite down to earth and, and we, we're quite sort of, 
were a bit um, call a spade a spade. We didn't, we, you know, we, but also I think it's humour. The, the women make me laugh so much and it, 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 that's really important. Um, some of the antiques of uh, of women in this country, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember the name of the campaign where they went to the, in London, the, the women's, pond that was being changed and they all <laughs> went to the men's pond what was that group? man I, friday man friday <laughs> absolutely brilliant i mean posy parker posy parker with her woman adult human female posters and just T-shirts. genius genius yeah. what yeah. i mean just the, the 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 creativity and the humor and women won't put up with it and i feel very proud to be part of that amongst these these other brilliant women so they've so got uh, t- talking of academics um I really want to credit Heather Brunskill Evans and Michelle Moore who've done I think you know for, for a long time so they you know they they started I remember when in 2016 I took part in a conference uh called Thinking Differently organized by Julia Long and it was the first conference um um, so I presented about kids. Uh, Julie Bindle was speaking, Magdalene Burns was speaking. Um, and it, it, it was, you know, Julia Long, bless her, to put on this amazing conference, the first one that that that, that was challenging it. Meanwhile, um, Heather Brunskill Evans and Michelle Moore had got Lisa Marciano, I don't really want to credit her as well, uh, over from the States and uh, was meeting in Leicester it was a meeting that I was supposed to go to but I was doing this conference instead so they came down to the conference and um, they really started and have been working for years consistently to defend kids and the hassle that those two women have had I think you know Heather Brunskill Evans has lived in a constant state of being ostracized from groups you know, being um, hounded out, you know, the Women's Equality Party. And and that's a horrible way to live. It really is. It really does take a toll when you're being pushed out, when you're being... And um, and she's consistently... So she... I mean, she spoke on a, a BBC a Radio 4 programme called Moral Maze and expressed caution, about, you know, the need for caution about kids. That got her thrown out of the Women's Equality Party. Um, she was she was no platform. She was uh, Michelle Moore has been consistently. I mean, I think her her disability publication d- journal uh, defended her, but her university hasn't. So she's been in a constant state of being bullied and harassed. And the toll on women's mental health is huge. And yet these two women have kept going. They haven't stopped. And they've produced two groundbreaking books of edited essays. Um, um, I've got a chapter in each book. Um, <laughs> But, you know, from, from detransitioners, from professionals, from parents, from, you know, just a range of academics, uh, researchers. Um, and the first one was called um, uh, Transgender Children and Young People Born in Your Own Body. And the second one was called The Invention of the Transgender Child. And both of those books, they're out in paperback. I think they're online now as well. Absolutely groundbreaking. In fact, the Tavistock tried to halt publication of the second one because it contained Michael Biggs's piece. <laughs> um, but um, the, the, I think those are the key, really key books. They're, they're you know, it's a sort of academic publications, but they're very, very readable and they've got a range of views. But they're, they're, I think those um, 
the work that those two women have done. <clears throat> Uh, you know, uh, within academia, with for the subject of trans children, has been groundbreaking, and I hope that. So I think J.K. Rowling is such a amazing, amazing role model, and and again, it, she she's such a British institution. She is, you know, I can't overstate her importance in this country, and yet. She has had the courage to speak out. And every time somebody of her stature, um, she speaks out and I just love her for doing so because of her role as a role model for, for girls. You can speak. Look, JK Rowling, our absolute heroine is speaking. You can do it. I, I, and I always think every person who speaks out, who has a platform, who is loved, um, I'm so grateful to them because I think girls are watching and they will learn that because those things have a huge impact when you've been told by everybody else you can't speak. That has a huge impact when you see a loved person speak. So J.K. Rowling has, has just been amazing to do that. Such courage. Oh, 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 oh,